You can listen to episodes of Conversations with Joe earlier than everybody else and completely ad-free on Nebula. When you sign up for Nebula, our creator-owned streaming service, you not only get access to ad-free content from my channel, you also get bonus episodes in my videos and exclusive series not available anywhere else. Sign up for Nebula by clicking the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe to support the podcast and get more eye-opening content. Hi, and welcome to the Answers with Joe podcast. I'm Joe Scott, and today I'm talking with John Cook. John is the founder and head guy at the website skepticalscience.com, uh, which is a site that tries to educate people about the misinformation, myths, and flat-out distortions circulating around uh, climate change. It sounds like a site that's skeptical of science. It's actually the opposite. Their slogan is getting skeptical about global warming skepticism. I found this site a while back uh, when researching sustainable energy stuff, and I, I thought it was really interesting because it takes all the arguments against global warming and it just deconstructs them to show how they're wrong, almost like a, a handbook you can reference when you're having an argument or a debate about climate change on social media or with family, which you'll find out in the interview, that's, that's not by accident. Uh, it was pretty much designed that way. Uh, so this is a pretty unstructured conversation. We talk about how he got started doing this, uh, why he actually got his PhD in psychology so that he can better understand denialism in all of its forms. And we talk about the backfire effect, how uh, presenting people with facts that go against their beliefs actually get people to paradoxically double down instead of you know evolving most of the time anyway. So this is a discussion about climate science, but we also dig into the psychology of what makes people push back against climate science. I also took the opportunity to read him some of the comments that I've gotten on previous uh, climate change videos to see what his rebuttal would be, and uh, it's it's interesting. You can tell he's pretty much heard it all at this point. He had all the answers right at the tip of his tongue, and it's it's fun to watch him kind of tear these things apart. Anyway, uh, anything else I can say right now pretty much gets talked about in the conversation, so I'll just jump into it. I want to thank John for taking the time to do this. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it's always cool to talk to people who are way smarter than me, so uh, enjoy this interview with John Cook. But first... So you've heard me talk about Canker Boy, which I know is a weird sponsor, but most people don't realize that I actually created Canker Boy. So that's me. I'm Canker Boy. <laughs> it's, it's a supplement I came up with several years ago. Uh, I'd had these recurring mouth ulcers my whole life, and I was just done. I was tired of it constantly being a problem, so I did a bunch of research, tested a bunch of things on myself, and I came up with this, and it worked. So I thought maybe I can make this available for other people, and that's what Canker Boy is. So weird sponsor, weird thing to talk about, but if you do have issues with canker sores and mouth ulcers, I urge you to give it a try. You get a two-month risk-free trial, so go to cankerboy.com to check it out. That's C-A-N-K-E-R-B-O-Y.com. Now, on with the show. Well, I thought we could just kind of start by you kind of uh, telling everybody a little bit about yourself and what your background is and how you got started doing what you do. Uh, so, I, um, I grew up in Australia. I've, I've lived in Australia for my whole life, apart from the last year or so mm -hmm. since I moved to the States. And about 10 years ago, in 2007, I started a website about climate change. Uh, Prior to that, I hadn't really been interested in climate change. It hadn't been something that was on my radar. But I started getting into conversations with my father-in-law at family get-togethers. And he started throwing all these arguments at me about why climate change was a hoax and um, why it wasn't happening and, and so on. And I started looking into his arguments. And the more I researched, um, the more I found that actually it was kind of... Uh, full of it, like there wasn't really much science behind his positions. Yeah. And so any, uh, any son-in-law, um, very eager to beat his father-in-law at the next family get-together, I started <laughs> building a list of all the possible arguments that he might throw at me. And, um, and then what the science said about each one, I started researching, actually going to the primary literature, like finding the, the original science papers and building this database of, science like scientific research grouped around different um climate myths mm -hmm. uh, and eventually I, I think the big light bulb moment for me was realizing other people have father fathers-in-laws or cranky uncles or um family members that they get into climate arguments with pretty much they might find this, yeah yeah that's right and and so um i i took this resource that was useful for me and put it online uh, as as the website skeptical science yeah and that that turned out to be i guess a, a turning point in my life all all great things come from family petty squabbles 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I I talked to other people and they they, they came at it because they want to um, make the world a better place and save save the polar bears and um, you know all these really noble heroic uh, motives. I just wanted to beat my father-in-law in an argument. <laughs> No, hey, you know what though? If it gets you there, um, uh, so so your background wasn't originally in climate science or anything like that. Like, what 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 was your what was your focus before that? Well, I well my background was in physics. Like when okay. I originally did my bachelor of science and, and a subsequent honors year, uh, it was in physics. And actually, majoring in astrophysics, which oh, nice. is why one of the most common arguments about climate change is that it's the sun, and the sun turned turned, turned out to be. The, um, my thesis topic in in my honours year, but um, okay. but I, but I never um, went into climate science at that point. I was really a layperson with a science background, so that I guess gave me uh, some tools to be able to read um, peer-reviewed papers and, and yeah. be able to translate them into plain language. That's important. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It is. And but when I started the website. Essentially, I was embarking for the first time in science communication and mm-hmm. actually engaging the public, trying to explain uh, like complicated climate science in in plain language and, yeah. and make it accessible to the general public. Well, I, I have to applaud you for the website. That's that's why I reached out to you. I was I was researching this uh, this video, and just to give you a little background on the video, since you haven't had a chance to see it, it's it's. Um, I've done a couple of videos in the past, which I don't guess I've shared with you. I should probably do that um, about just climate change topics and sustainability and that kind of thing. And of course I've gotten every comment you can imagine under the sun uh, mm-hmm. uh, arguing different things. And so I thought um, it would be, it would be a good idea. And I'm sure I'm, I'm just setting myself up for punishment, but um, to go ahead and like address these myths that I keep seeing in my comments and just kind of, you know, do it all at once instead of like trying to respond to each one. Um, no, no, it is a good idea because once you post this video where we address the myths, you'll never get another comment uh, rejecting climate science. Oh, again. never. This will put it all to bed, I'm sure. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I started to say in the video, I think I, think I took it out though, just kind of, uh, I'm sure this will change nobody's mind, but uh, we can talk more about that in a second. But, but no, I, exactly. I, I run across your website uh, I think in one of the previous videos that I had done and it was especially helpful for this one because you've got literally a, a page that just lists all the different arguments and the rebuttals of those arguments. And I also like how you have uh, like a beginner and an intermediate and sometimes an advanced level answer to give. Um, that's like something I really work on on my channel is to like take complicated topics and kind of explain them in a way that even a dummy like me can get it. And um, I like to think I'm more intermediate and advanced, but sometimes I'm not. <laughs> well, but the, the problem is our audience isn't one monolith. They're not all intermediate right. or like there's, there's multiple uh, audience levels. And mm-hmm. so for me, the challenge I found once I started doing this science communication is what level do you picture that? If, if you go basic, then people who are engaged with the issue, it's too trivial for them. But if you go intermediate, then, um, New, people who are new to the topic, it goes over their head. So you, you've, whatever decision you make, you feel like you're going to lose a chunk of your audience. Um, and uh, I ended up going intermediate. I think that was just the level that I was comfortable at. Like, and and probably a big moment for me was um, I had a uh, my sister-in-law. I, I sent her the website and she just goes, I don't understand it. It's just too complicated. And I, and I thought, oh, I was trying to make this uh, simple, but it's obviously mm-hmm. like it's that curse of knowledge for people who have scientific training. It's hard for them to write uh, content that's um, digestible for someone who doesn't have any science background. Uh, and so th- I think probably the biggest turning point for the Skeptical Science website was when someone emailed me and said, you should write your rebuttals at multiple levels. And I was like, are you nuts? Like, do you realize how much work that would be? That's just yeah. insane. But so sarcastically, I said, oh, that's great. Uh, why don't you help me with that? And he was like, no, 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 I'm not, even, I'm not doing that. Are you crazy? But I just wanted to give you the idea. And, you can run with it. Uh, and even though I, I, like I knew I couldn't possibly do it for myself, by myself, I put a call to action on the website because I could see that it was a really powerful idea. Yeah. And, 
and I said, uh, basically my pitch was, I write um, my rebuttals at an intermediate level. Who thinks that they could translate that into a basic level? And overnight, I got a flood of like dozens of people saying, yeah, I think I can do a better job than you at writing science communication. <laughs> and um, uh, we, we formed this, this team of, of debunkers, of, of science writers, um, pretty much overnight. And, and from that point till now, Skeptical Science has been a community rather than just a single blogger. Yeah, yeah, you got a bunch of people working for you now or working on the site. Volunteering, yeah. Volunteering, yeah, yeah. Uh, when when I sent the email out, I was kind of like, I don't know who this is going to go to. Um, I had an email from you somewhere that I had sent an email to and it got bounced back, but it might have just been an old email. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, no, I am curious about that turning point you were talking about. Because like you're, you're kind of going down one path of your life and then you put together this website and then is, was it just that the website got popular or was there something about the the findings that you were coming across that just kind of changed you internally to say like, this is a really important thing that I need to be putting out there. Yeah. I mean, I joke about being, um, it being about beating my father-in-law in in an argument, but that was really just the initial catalyst. But uh, for me personally, when it became a, a serious issue was when I realized that climate change wasn't just about polar bears and penguins. It was, it affected people. And moreover, it affects, um, it affects most the people who have contributed the least to climate change, like people in developing countries who right. have uh, emitted so little compared to developed countries and who are also the least able to adapt to it. So mm-hmm. I saw it much more as a, a, a human justice issue and a human welfare issue more than, than an environmental issue. Yeah. And that's when I really started to get a fire in the belly about it and, and cool. devote devote more and more time yeah that's uh that's what the pope said he said it's a it's a humanitarian thing um i'm i'm paraphrasing the pope here but but he was he was making the point that it's it's uh it was probably in italian as well when he said (laughs) oh i know he's he's from south america so it was like portuguese or something uh but uh but but when he does his papal edicts they have to be in italian yeah oh okay just a nitpick (laughs) okay gosh you just have to correct everybody on everything don't you (laughs) <laughs> you just can't get out of that it, it, it's a force of habit i guess yeah, that's fair that's fair uh, it means that i'm a real pain in the butt at family get-togethers because <laughs> I, ah but is that true let's let's examine the uh, logical fallacy in that argument you're the actually guy well actually yes. <laughs> everybody loves that um but no i love what you just said about the whole it's not about polar bears and penguins thing because every time i see some uh climate change thing that has like some polar bear floating on you know an iceberg out somewhere i'm like nobody cares about that like i mean yeah that's that that sucks but like that's not the real problem like you just said it's the fact that there's people in developing countries that are going to really suffer from this and and even in developing or developed countries i mean entire cities are going to have to move if the the sea level rises high enough and that's going to cost you know untold amounts of money and Anyway, it just it makes more sense economically and humanitarianly and everything to deal with it now than you know. Resisting the urge to nitpick the grammar of the word humanitarian. I stand by humanitarianly. <laughs> uh, we'll go to my grave with that one. So you seem to focus more on sort of that changing people's mind thing. Like you got the De- denial one hundred and one series on on YouTube. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, so um, what, what, I guess we're, we're talking about turning points, but a, a big, um, an, another turning point for me was in, I think it was 2011. Uh, the website was getting more and more popular and it was sucking up more and more of my time. And, and I had a day job at the time. I was self-employed doing, yeah. um, do, doing websites, actually. And, um, and I was, every, the, the blessing and the curse of, being self-employed is every minute like you're free to spend your time on whatever you want, but every minute you spend on something else is a, a minute less that you're making a living. And I'm, so I'm adjusting to that myself right now. Yeah. Right. And so as our skeptical science was sucking up more and more time, it, it really was becoming unsustainable. And, and I had to start to think, can I keep doing this or not? Uh, and 
And then uh, I guess a Hail Mary pass for me was uh, a job doing climate communication became available at the University of Queensland in mm. Australia. And so I took that job and it enabled me to keep doing climate communication. And at one point I was just having a casual conversation with my, um, with the director of the Institute. Uh, and I said, yeah, you know, one day down the track, I'd be, it'd be cool to do a, an online, like a massive open online course or a MOOC about climate misinformation. Yeah. And, um, and I, it was just a, a casual chat. And then a few weeks later, someone comes up and says, oh, I, I hear you're doing this MOOC about climate misinformation. I'm like, what, where, am I, where, when is this? And it turns out my director was so enthused about the idea that he started doing all the administrative things that university um, executive or directors or do to, to make this reality and, and yeah. obtaining funding for it and, and so on. And all unbeknownst to me and, and it had become a, a thing. And so we spent a, nearly a year developing all the content and, uh, I recruited a lot of the skeptical science team members, the the authors who also happen to be professors at universities, and we uh, put together all these lectures and uh, and we did two things with this course. We told the story of climate change, but uh, at the same time that we were telling all the key facts about climate change, mm. we were also debunking key myths about each of those climate facts. And so it was this kind of dual storyline. Here's the facts about science and here are the myths about climate change and here are the techniques that each myth uses to distort the facts. Yeah. It's almost like you got to master two different types of sciences, the, the climate science and like the human psychology part of it. Like you, right. you, it, there, there's a yeah. whole, like, because people don't respond to facts the way we think a logical person would. We're not really logical creatures. We're emotional. So you have to find a way to appeal to that, that emotional side. Um, how does that well, factor into what you guys do? Oh, it's, it's complete. Well, I mean, this seems to be the telling the stories of life changes, but, but um, the other seismic shift in my thinking was uh, as someone from a physical science background, communicating science to the public, yeah. I thought it was about, explaining the science and, and the job was just get the science right and make it understandable uh, and I had no idea that there was a whole science to science communication and there was a, a whole you know body of literature on how to effectively communicate science and mm. and I, I learned that this this um, whole new world existed when a psychologist emailed me and said uh, there's research indicating that the way that you're debunking myths on skeptical science could actually um, reinforce the myths and actually make things worse. Uh, and, and he sent me some research papers. And well, what did that um, feel like? It, it was actually um, horror. Like I, yeah. I, was, I was reading this paper and, and it was saying, uh, it described an experiment where they debunked some myths about vaccination and, and people ended, some people ended up believing the myth even more afterwards. Mm -hmm because of the way the debunking was structured. And I looked at the, the, the bad debunking and then I looked at how I was debunking and they're almost exactly the same. And I, it's kind of like you're reading this paper and, and the blood is draining from my face and I'm thinking, oh my God, am I making things worse? Yeah. And uh, it, it turns out like the, that, was, that was a very dark moment, but uh, <laughs> over, over, like, it, that result was a single paper. And like one of the key elements of science is that um, science, scientific results need to replicate. Uh, it turns out that scientists have been trying to replicate that backfire effect since then and have really been struggling to do it. And so the current scientific understanding of, is that at least that type of bad debunking probably isn't going to backfire and, and reinforce them. So I probably wasn't making things worse. Mm -hmm. um, but it certainly, the paper has served its purpose in opening my eyes to, to social science research. And since then, I've, I've been consuming the research avidly. I ended up doing a PhD in cognitive psychology. And oh, wow. my current job in America is, is doing research into the psychology of, of communication and debunking. Well, that, well that's cool. Um, I, want to go, I want to talk more about that because that really is what it all comes down to, you know, um, 
there is like a doubling down of America. Like I, people you talk about the dumbing down of America. I'm more worried about the doubling down. <laughs> That's good. I've well, heard because, that. I like that. You know, um, when people see information and facts that conflict with their worldview, they, like you said, there's a backfire effect. They just refuse to believe it. So, I mean, is, is that just the in-group, out-group bias, basically, what's going on there? Or, or yeah. yeah, and that's a, that's a different, like, one thing about the backfire effect is there are different backfires. Like, the one thing, I, the one that I was just talking about was the familiarity backfire effect. The one you just described is called the worldview backfire effect, where okay. when you receive, um, like, a debunking, like, and scientific information that threatens your ideology or your identity uh, you can often double down basically mm -hmm. and, and so that has replicated uh, although again there's, there's some scientists have had trouble replicating it so it's a it's kind of a it's a it's a bit of a messy picture on that front but certainly even whether it backfires or not we know that um, it, science messages can be ineffective if they threaten a person's ideology mm -hmm. and and this is especially the case in climate change like at the start of my PhD, I, I tested what happens when you tell people that there's 97% consensus amongst climate scientists that humans are causing global warming. And I found that uh, it had a strong effect for people at the liberal end of the political spectrum, but for people at the conservative end of the spectrum, it either had no effect or a slight backfire effect. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that's a really clear example that our politics influences how we look at scientific information and how we update our beliefs when we receive information if we think that it threatens our ideology well i i start off the the video talking about the the in-group out-group bias that we all have and 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 i say something to the effect of you know Climate, climate change has become a political issue, but it shouldn't be because there, there's actual numbers you can look at. You know, there's charts that you can look at. Like there's, there's actual data. It's not like some gray area. It's all right there in front of you. Um, and that's gotta be incredibly frustrating being a science communicator, especially specifically on climate change to just constantly be dealing with, um, I guess, beating your head against the wall, trying to get people to kind of get over their own biases. Um, I mean, the beating ahead, beating their heads against the wall is, is kind of, no, beating our heads against the wall. That, I mean, that's a phrase I use a fair bit because um, often when I talk about the psychology of climate denial and how to communicate climate science, people ask me, how do you convince a climate denier that climate change is real? And the answer I, I give is... Um, it's kind of the wrong question. Like we shouldn't be asking, how do you convince a denier? The, the more appropriate question is, who should we be targeting? Who, where should we be pouring our resources, mm -hmm. our limited resources in communicating climate change? And yeah. I think the answer is not trying to convince climate deniers because you are essentially just beating your head against a brick wall. Um, it's, it's largely a futile exercise i mean maybe you might get like two percent success rate right you're going to get much more bang for your buck if you pour your energy and your resources and your time into uh communicating the realities of climate change to the undecided majority the um the much larger larger group of people who aren't um whose political ideology doesn't distort the way they think about science mm -hmm. and they're more open to evidence and so you, you're going to have uh, a more productive uh, yeah. outcome I think and I feel like there's a, there's a line wherever it is on whether it's a political spectrum or ideological or whatever the, the, there's a line where beyond that you're just not going to reach people and, yeah. and it's not just yeah. on climate change but on any in, on, a, on any topic but um, and, and you don't need to convince a hundred percent of the public to right. get uh, enough public support to get action uh, and in fact in America like slightly I think it's like 52 percent of Americans are either alarmed or concerned about climate change. Mm. And so those people are already on board. Uh, yeah. And the people who are dismissive about climate change are like about eight, nine, 10%. They're a tiny fraction. And then you have that undecided middle group as well. Yeah. Well, I always, um, I always want to ask like, what is it, what are you getting out of resisting climate change? Um, 
science. Like, like what, I understand why an oil company would be against it. You know, like mm. the, you can see the, the easy motives in places like that, but it's like, why, why would just the regular schlub in Missouri or whatever, you know, be so resistant to this information? Yeah, one of the most powerful motivators for people is social norms. Yeah. What does our, our group believe? Yeah. And, uh, or how do they behave? So if everyone around you is behaving a certain way, there's, it's an incredibly enormous pressure for you to behave the same way or, or think the same way. Yeah. Uh, and it happens at a subconscious level even. And so there's been studies showing that social norming just makes us think and do things that we wouldn't even think that we would do because it's just so powerful. So just imagine that you uh, belong to a community or a cultural group that all believe that climate science is a hoax. Um, if you go against the flow of your community, then you pay a big social price. You right. can get ostracized, you can get reviled by, you know, your friends, your family, your community. And from an individual personal <coughs> level, it, it kind of makes sense to, um, uh, to reject science because the social cost is just too harsh. So, um, I mean, it's, that's not a good thing to do, but at least that helps understand why people do it. Yeah. I made a point in the video to call out um, Debbie Dooley. Do you know who she is? No. She was one of the founders of the Tea Party here in America. So she's, she's a very right-wing conservative, but she's over the last five years or so been promoting uh, sustainable energy solutions and solar especially. Um, and she's been, you know, trying to be an advocate for climate change science. Um, and I, what I say in the video is that, I was putting that in the context of Al Gore because everybody says, well, Al Gore has a huge house. Why should I, you know, listen to him or whatever, or he made all this money on it. And I'm like, okay, well then look at, look at Debbie Dooley because you know, Al Gore was preaching to the choir. She walked into the lion's den wearing a Lady Gaga steak suit, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, and I mean, that, that takes a lot of guts to do that. And I applaud her for that. I mean, and, like and I said, are... the, the social, the social norms that we have. Do you know, like, I'm not familiar with that story, but do you know what kind of reaction she's got from the Tea Party or from conservatives? Um, just in the stories that I've read about her, she's, you know, she just runs up against a lot of uh, resistance. I, I don't know that she's been, like, ostracized or cast out or anything like that, but but she's held her ground, you know. But, but, but she puts it... Um, I think the fact that she does have that pedigree of actually, you know, kind of being a founder of the Tea Party that... People are kind of like, okay, well, I don't agree with you on this, but you know, you you've got your bona fides, you know. But but what what she does that I I think is smart is she doesn't put it in terms of again environmentalism and polar bears and stuff like that. She talks about the um, the, the economy behind it, the fact that you know solar uh, the solar industry is one of the top growing industries in the country. That's where the jobs are. She talks about how it um, strengthens our national security because it makes our energy grid less vulnerable to attack and stuff like that. Um, and those yeah. are you know, things that appeal to that, that side of the aisle. And while I'll just reiterate that I don't think that we should be pouring all our energy on trying to convince deniers. That doesn't mean I think that we should, not try as well yeah. i completely forsake them and and if we do try it really requires people who share the values of the community like leaders like like um this person yeah. uh and then using arguments that don't threaten their values but but uh, actually affirm them right and so um and i'll give you an example of of those kind of values actually leading to a denier changing their mind um, because I used to get into arguments, not just with my father-in-law, but with my own father. And he didn't believe uh, that climate change was caused by humans either. And we'd get into, for years, we got into these arguments. Uh, and then one day he said, um, Sam, I believe that climate change is happening. And I kind of fell off my chair. And at this point, I was doing my PhD in, in cognitive, <laughs> the cognitive psychology of denial. And I was kind of like, oh, here's a chance to, um, to <laughs> peer under the hood. And, you know, I'm kind of like, like Jane Goodall and an ape just wandered in my house and I can, yeah. um, <laughs> maybe not the best analogy, but, um, well, your dad just but, became a case study. Yeah. And so I said to him in a very kind of trying to be casual, keep my poker face on. And I said, so what caused you to change your mind, dad? And his response was, Oh, I've always thought this. 
And I was like, oh, okay. So, um, so uh, I had to kind of deconstruct and figure it out myself. And in the end, what I think happened was uh, a few years prior to that, he announced to me that he was getting solar panels put on his roof because, that, because the, the way the finance works in Queensland, in Australia, uh, and the way you get uh, incentives to put on solar panels, mm. uh, they pay for themselves within a few years. And from mm. that point on, you get free electricity. It, it mm. was a no-brainer from a financial point of view. And so whenever he talked about the solar panels, he'd always remind me, I'm doing this for hip pocket reasons, son, not for environmental reasons. Don't get excited. And, and, uh, and every three months when he got his electricity bill, he'd call me up and brag about the check that he got from the electric yeah. company rather than the bill. Uh, and I, there's, a, there's a funny thing um, about the psychology of behaviour and beliefs. Like we tend to think that you change someone's beliefs, then their behaviour will change. But the influence can go in both directions. Mm. Um, if you change someone's... Uh, so humans... Um, humans, I'm talking about them like there's something other than myself. But, um, <laughs> Those crazy <laughs> humans, I'm glad I'm not one. But, but um, when our behaviour conflicts with our beliefs, we experience this discomfort called cognitive dissonance. Right. And, and we have to change one or the other to bring them in line and, and reduce that discomfort. And it's a lot easier to actually change our beliefs. That's why if we're behaving in a non-environmental way, like we're polluting or we, you know, we're driving our SUVs or whatever, yeah. and, that, and then we think, oh, gee, that's causing climate change. It's a lot easier just to deny climate change rather than sell our car and change our lifestyle. Um, but in the case of my dad, he was behaving environmentally, but not thinking environmentally. Mm. And I think that his thinking shifted to become in line with his behavior. That's interesting. It's like, you know, people doing the right things for the wrong reasons. They're still yeah. doing the right things, you know, not, not, that, yeah. not that making money is a wrong reason. There's nothing wrong with making money. Uh, yeah. But, but it was that I- idea of um, um, the value of like just, financial self-interest was what yeah. initiated it but that behavior change led to a belief change and and he actually developed environmental values because yeah. of um because of what was initially just self-interest well on that same uh, sort of on that same track i was i was going to see what your opinion was on government regulation versus say market forces um because i've always thought that um if, if, if the market can shift, like in the, in the sense of, like you just said, you know, people buying solar panels because it you know, benefits their own self-interest, um, that's the better way to go just because people are kind of pushing instead of being pulled or being forced to do something. Um, but then again, sometimes if you need quick change enacted, you need that big mandate from above to kind of shift people around. I, I wondered if, if you had an opinion on that or could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I, I do, although it's not a terribly informed opinion because I'm not an economist. Okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think that it, it needs a, bit, a mix of both. Yeah. I think that um, the innovation and like market-driven innovation is, is a really powerful force and usually operates uh, a lot quicker than, than, than predictions. So, mm-hmm. so that, that actually gives me hope, the idea that, like, for example, prices of solar power have always exceeded, like they've gone down faster right. than, than predicted. So it, it's, it's growing, um, you know, in a non-linear way. cheaper than coal in the next, like, 20 I've, I've, I've heard that it is depending on the market sector. So but it know, already is. Yeah, in, in some places. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it's, I'm not exactly sure what the situation is there. Again, that's not my area of expertise. But I think that the urgency dictated by the science requires that, that we, need, um, we need strong action. And, and the, the more we delay fast uh, transitioning to, to clean power, the, um, the, the deeper the impacts that, that we're going to be experiencing in, in the upcoming decades. Yeah. Um, but, but even if you were just to rely on a market um, solution only, what that requires is putting a price on carbon. Uh, if we're not including the costs of, of pollution in, in the market, then the right. market is broken and, and it, it will fail. And so we're not doing that. We don't have a price on carbon, whether it's a carbon tax or, or an emission trading scheme. Um, 
that's not happening in the US and also from an Australian, it's not happening in Australia at the moment. We actually had a carbon price a couple of years ago, but then a conservative government came into power and they repealed it. it took yeah. took it, the progress we'd made and, and took us backwards, which was really tragic. Um, and so that's, I think that's a big tragedy with, with uh, climate policy is that even the people who don't believe in regulation, who believe in the power of the market, uh, they're not, a lot of them are not, um, uh, you know, well, they reject the idea that, well, the, well, let's use the market to solve climate change by putting a price on carbon and then the market can decide what's the most efficient solution. Yeah. That said, there are some Republicans who are coming out advocating for carbon pricing and, uh, and I think that they're important messengers and, and hopefully that part of the conservative um community will will get bigger over time yeah um sometimes when i think about what it would take to get everybody really you know on board with the the climate change thing i think about the 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 ozone hole that the aerosol cans caused and how how quickly i mean i don't know that we've officially fixed it i think there's still a hole down there but they you know they they stopped it from growing and they they took the right steps and everything um but that clearly was like a, a fear factor there. It's like, oh, we've got solar radiation is going to be coming through the clouds. We're all going to get skin cancer and all that kind of stuff. Like that was a big scary. You saw the picture of the South Pole and Antarctica right. and everything. I was wondering if there's something, if there's, if there's a, an event that could happen. I'm not wishing this, obviously. But if there's, there was an event that could happen on the, the climate change side of things that would be that... Um, clarifying for everybody to, to, to be like, oh, wow, this is a real thing that we need to do something about. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about that because it would, it would require both an event and people joining the dots between climate change and that event. And I think we've already had a lot of events. We've had yeah. hur hurricanes that have become more intense um, because mm -hmm. of climate change um, or the, the hurricane that hit, uh, was it Hurricane Sandy that hit New York? Um, mm -hmm. not only was it an intense hurricane, you had one foot of sea level rise caused by climate change, which was just enough to put it over the, right. um, the threshold that caused, you know, huge billions of dollars of damage to New York. Um, and that's, that's climate change played a big factor in that. But if people don't join the dots, then uh, uh, it's, I don't, yeah, I, I think that relying on a sort of, again, it's like a Hail Mary pass thinking one event will fix it. I'm not sure it's and and the big problem from a science communication point of view is is climate change is almost uniquely designed to be incredibly difficult to communicate like mm. uh, it's it's global in nature um, whereas we're used to like at least the ozone hole was a single thing you know it's like a yeah that's a good point it's yeah. a single visceral kind of and it's uh, something you can concept. see yeah, well, well, you can see a visualization of it. A visual, yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, you can imagine it's something that human imagination can get hold of. This hole right. and these poisonous kind of radiation right. coming down and, and harming us. Whereas climate change is this sort of statistical abstraction. It's uh, happens over decades and it's happening globally and it's not caused by you know one thing, but it's caused by everyone. And um, and it often seems to be happening. Um, not only long into the future, but to polar bears and penguins, you know, things that are mm. like very far away from me. And so that psychological distance um, in, in all these different kinds of ways, like lots of different types of psychological distance, whether it's through time or space or different species to us, makes it really hard to make people concerned about it. Um, and so that's, that's the challenge. I think that communicators are getting better because they're, they're now um, recognising that the, the, the cliches of climate change, icebergs and penguins uh, and, or polar bears, are not, um, they're not uh, resonating with the public. Right. And yeah. so it's, climate change is being framed more and more as a human problem and looking at the impacts that it has, and even local impacts, looking at sea level rise in Virginia, um, like just a few hours from where I am, you can, you can see flooding happening at, at Virginia Beach. Yeah. that wasn't wasn't happening before um and uh, you can see examples like of, of different types of impacts happening all around the country yeah so uh in all the the research that you've come across and everything what 
what do you think is the worst case scenario? Should, should things not improve fast enough? I mean, are we talking like turning into Venus <laughs> at some point or? No, I don't think like Venus means that the planet becomes uninhabitable and all life right. gets extinguished on the planet. Um, I, I'm not really worried about that. Um, uh, I think that even the, the middle of the range scenarios are bad enough for us to be really concerned and, and, yeah. um, and strongly motivated to act. Uh, I don't think you need to exaggerate climate change in order to realise just how serious it is. I think to me, like, just as I had that kind of blood draining from the face moment when I was reading that psychology paper, uh, I've, I've observed that anyone who works, uh, who's engaged with the climate issue, um, eventually they have, they have that kind of horror moment where they realise how serious it is. Mm. For me, I was reading a paper about what climate was like uh, about 100,000 100, years ago. And at that time, global temperatures were roughly about one degree warmer than now. Sea levels were about nine metres higher than now. So just one degree of global warming uh, is enough heat in the system to melt... Um, big chunks of Greenland and Antarctica and cause, um, you know, metres and metres of sea level rise. Sorry, I'm still using metric. Uh, it's hard to break out of. I um, know, um, I'm, try I'm trying to do more metric. If, if I don't, I get called out by everybody else in the world on my videos. So, so to me, that's, that, that's hugely impactful on human society because um, most of the human population live on the coast. And right. so I think that, I forget most of the um, top most top ten most populated cities in the world are coastal cities. Mm -hmm. So um, so think of ten meters of sea level rise, uh, and and what kind of impact that would have on population migration and infrastructure costs and um, yeah. and all and all the second order kind of flow on effects that would happen from those things. So outside of of conservation, <clears throat> excuse me, and just being more sustainable in our energy production and everything. Um, what are the odds of being able to do big, like mega, mega projects, like things that can remove carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere or uh, shades out in space that can actually like <laughs> block the sunlight and stuff like that? Yeah. I, I mean, again, this isn't my uh, area, but I, <laughs> lately I've been thinking about that. Um, and, and with the qualifier that I'm not an expert, but uh, I, I, in my head, I think of it as kind of the Mr. Burns solution. Um, there's this <laughs> scene in The Simpsons where um, there's a doctor who's examining Mr. Burns and, and he says, you have every disease. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and he asks, how am I still alive? And he says, well, every disease is in balance with every other disease and, and it's Funny. stopping them from killing you. And, and the idea of using like geoengineering to try to cancel out um, the global warming we're caused is kind of the same idea. Like rather than uh, stop causing, you know, the first problem, let's add, add a second problem and hope that it cancels out the first problem. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a very fraught approach because um, it's, it has its own side effects, whether it's pouring, reflective um, particles into the atmosphere to yeah, try to reflect that. sunlight or something in space, you know, which sounds very Bond villain actually. But, um, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, I, I think that rather than um, trying to you drink one poison and drink a second poison to try to counteract it, yeah. it's a much uh, more elegant solution just to not drink the first poison in the first place. Yeah. Well, so uh, that leads to the next um, question is what, what, what's, what are the best things that people can be doing on an individual basis? Like what, what, um, I know that your whole thing is kind of getting people to just accept that climate change is happening, but it's kind of like what happens then? Okay. So now I believe in it. What can I actually be doing? Like what, what's the action step there? Right. So, um, uh, it's, it's a, it's a long answer to that question. Um, <laughs> what we need to solve climate change is to transition from fossil fuel power to clean power. Yeah. Uh, to make that transition, um, it requires it requires political will and, and public will, and so uh, so there's two things that people can do to fight climate change, and, and I characterise them in two groups: walk the walk or talk the talk. Now, usually we think that 
talk is just talk is cheap but action is important and in in the case of walk the walk i mean things like reducing your own emissions put on solar panels or or try to drive around less or um yeah. or um just do things in your own individual behavior to reduce your own personal carbon emissions and and that's important and we should all be doing that definitely but in order to actually solve climate change in a meaningful way, we need to make that big societal transition. And we can only achieve that if there's public and political will. And we can only achieve that if we're talking the talk, if people are um, talking about climate change with their friends, with their family, and most importantly, with their elected officials. Uh, mm. And so uh, there's, there's a big uh, climate silence in our society. People aren't talking about climate change. Just a few days ago here at George Mason University, uh, working with Yale University, we just issued this report uh, or survey of the American public and found that I think it's like five out of six Americans rarely or never talk about climate change. And even amongst that half of the public who are concerned or alarmed about climate change, even most of them don't talk about climate change yeah. with their friends and family. So there's this climate silence, which is really um, inhibiting um, the kind of um, progress we need and we yeah. need to break that silence. So, so talk about it with your friends, with your family, with your, your uh, elected officials. And I think that's the most meaningful way that we can achieve the real uh, transition that we need. I, I really don't talk politics on my channel very much unless it ties into some kind of science, like, you know, climate change is a, a, a science. And so uh, I want to talk about that there. Uh, it's just not a political channel, so I don't really talk about it that much. But well, well neither, neither do I. And that's why when you ask me questions about policy and economics, <laughs> I get uncomfortable because that's not my thing. Like I'm, I'm yeah. a scientist and I'm like, to me, climate change is a scientific issue. Um, communicating science is a social science issue. And, and so it's unfortunate that politics has got entangled in it, but I, that doesn't change the fact that climate change is is a, a, a thing about the greenhouse effect and carbon cycles and mm -hmm. you know, it's physics and chemistry. Yeah. So I'm, I'm completely comfortable talking about the scientific side of climate change. Yeah. And, and you're doing your part to get it out there so other people can do the same thing. Um, I think we're just so polarized in the United States right now um, that any kind of political issue is just like, let's just not, it's not worth it. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to have right. a good day here. You know, it just doesn't get, <laughs> About I don't. It. I don't want to get into a, a half-hour argument with my father-in-law, so I'm just going to put my head down and keep eating and get right. through this meal. <laughs> oh, lovely Thanksgiving meal. Um, well, I wanted to do something, and I don't want to put you on the spot. So if you don't want to do this, that's fine. We can we can cut this out. But um, I, like I said, I get all these comments in my uh, on my videos with all these different um, let's call them climate denier arguments and stuff like that. I wanted to throw some at you and get your response to them. Sure. Are you comfortable with that? Oh, totally comfortable. Okay. It's, it's, it's fun, actually. When I, give, when I give public talks, I anticipate that I'll probably get some arguments thrown at me, but it happens actually less often than I would like. Hmm. Um, and and it, it's actually, like, my attitude is turn those, um, those incidents, which could be unpleasant, into positive, teachable moments. Yeah. Uh, and just to digress for a moment, um, uh, once I gave a talk where I explained the techniques used to distort the science, like the techniques of denial. Uh, and then there was a Q and A afterwards and, and there were like, it was a room of engineers. So there were an unusually large number of um, deniers in the, in the room. And so they were throwing a lot of myths at me, particularly a couple of people. And someone came up to me afterwards and said, did you plant those two deniers in the room? Cause they were, they were doing all the techniques that you'd just explained. I hadn't. It was just you're like, well, I didn't make that stuff up. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. All right. So this is one that I actually address in the video, and I got a lot of the information from your site. So I'm sure we're going to be on the same page here. But um, some people were arguing that more CO2 makes plants and crops more stable because plants need CO2 as food, and they actually use a term called global greening to describe the benefits of CO2. Right. So um, humans need calcium. Right, calcium is good for our bones, and milk has calcium. Ice cream has calcium. So, if eating 
ice cream gives us calcium and that's good for our bones and all we should need to eat is calcium is ice cream right and we should be fine that's exactly the same argument as saying all all plants need is co2 plants need co2 but they also need uh, other things in order to flourish they need a stable environment they need water but the the right amount of water too much or too little is a problem and they uh, they don't need heat stress uh, but when you have global warming, you, you can get intensified drought, you can get intensified um, floods, you can get heat stress, all things which affect um, um, plants and, and stop them from flourishing. So just to concentrate on this one thing, CO2, which is something that plants need, that's ignoring the big picture. And it's like saying, all you need is ice cream. What kind of logical fallacy would that be called, Dino? Uh, it's, I guess it would be cherry picking or, or an oversimplification. Oh, okay. It's, it's, uh, it's only cherry picking or looking at one part of the, the larger picture. Cool. Um, some may argue that the Antarctic is actually growing. Right. So, um, so what's happening with the Antarctic is all the ice is shedding from the edges. Um, and and this, this happens in general, whether there's global warming or not. Uh, it sheds ice from the edges. And, but then it snows in the middle and, and that builds up ice in the middle. So it, it gets thicker in the middle, but then it pushes outwards and then sheds. So if there was no global warming, that would be roughly in balance. When you have global warming, um, it continues to thicken the middle and sometimes that thick, thickening might even get faster because there's, when there's heat, there's more moisture in the air, which can lead to more snow. Mm. Um, but the at the edges it's losing ice even quicker and uh, satellites are measuring um, the, the total amount of ice in greenland and they're finding that greenland is actually overall losing ice at a rate of about 300 billion tons of ice every year to the one analogy i like to use to um illustrate how much 300 billion tons of ice is is that's equivalent to two mount everests um, wow. Greenland is losing two Mount, of, Mount Everests of ice every year. And to look at only what's happening in the middle is to ignore the whole lot. And again, you're cherry picking. Cool. Um, somebody argued that electric cars are more polluting because the electricity is generated by coal-fired plants and millions of electric cars on the market would put a strain on the electrical grid. Uh, so, well, firstly, electric cars are much more efficient than um, well, we in Australia we call them petrol cars, or right. I think you call them gas here, right? So, um, so combustion cars, internal combustion engine, ice cars. Right. I've been hearing that a lot. Ice cars, ice cars, right? Uh, what does the E stand for? Internal internal combustion engine engine makes sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so firstly, there are a lot like, more electricity. No. So so even if you were plugging your electric car into a power outlet that was getting its energy from um, fossil fuels, mm-hmm. it would still be more efficient than a, um, than a, a internal combustion car. But um, it doesn't have to come from fossil fuels. You can get, you can have a, a your house has solar panels. So mm-hmm. you drive around and then you plug your car in and it's getting, it's getting um, power from solar panels or from uh, wind farms. So you could be driving around in a car that's powered by, sunbeams and the breeze um so so firstly on that front um uh, electric cars uh, can can run at a significantly lower um uh, uh, fossil fuel you know carbon emissions than than a combustion car mm-hmm. um but but again even even if all things are equal and it's they're both drawing from fossil fuels it, it's just a much more efficient car in general anyway i'd also heard that um in general, our electrical grid is getting greener over time. Like it's getting cleaner as more solar and wind gets added to the mix and everything. Um, so the longer you keep an electric car, the cleaner it's actually gonna it's actually gonna be. Right, uh, and, as and to the gas car. As for the argument that it's going to um, put stress on our electrical grid, uh, and this is again, this is outside of my expertise, but um, oh, that's, that <coughs> seems like a um, that sounds like a bit of a. Uh, um, a wimpy argument, really. I thought that America was, you know, the the can-do country that comes up with technical solutions and 
you know, what's with this fatalism and this sort of pessimism? Well, surely there's, there's the brain power and the uh, technology to create, you know, brilliant technological solutions that can deal with these things and, and develop smart grids. And in fact, um, and again, I don't really understand this, but, but from what I've heard that if you have a fleet of uh, electric cars, they can help smooth out the grid because when they're plugged in, they can not, they could either be um, taking power or providing power, but you know, they contain power. They're part of, part of the system. And so that could be yeah. used in a smart grid system to actually create a more um, evened out and, and efficient um, electrical grid. Oh, that's cool. All right. Um, a couple more. Uh, there was yeah, one. Take that with a grain of salt because I, I'm not an expert on that. And everything I could have <laughs> said could have been something I read on a, on a, a blog post that was, sure, okay. you know, not, not a peer review. When I read information about climate science, I, I go to the, the um, source um, peer-reviewed papers, uh, uh, but whereas I, it tends to be more secondhand when I'm talking about solutions and policy. Fair enough. Well, this one's more on the on, on your up your alley then. Uh, this one says throughout Earth's I'm just reading it throughout Earth's history year by year more CO2 was sequestered underground, and compared to Earth's history, we are in a CO2 starved atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing already. Uh, if things continue, the CO2 level would get so low, everything could die. Therefore, raising it is probably safer than allowing it to get dangerously low. So I was um, at the COP21 meeting in Paris in, I think it was 2015, and I was talking to um, Patrick Moore, who claims to be one of the founders of Greenpeace, I think, and, and he, he gave me this argument. Um, he said that uh, CO2 was much higher in the Earth's past. And my response was, Yes, but also the sun was um, not as hot in the Earth's past. As you go further back, millions of years, CO2 gets, gets, gets warmer, but also the sun gets cooler. Mm -hmm. And so um, the, the two roughly balance each other out. Uh, and in fact, there's a reason for that, which is kind of complicated, but it's not by coincidence. And, and Patrick Moore's response was, well, I like my graph better than yours. And I was like, <laughs> it's the same graph. You're just not... You're not um, contain, you know, you're not including all the data. You're only looking at CO two. You're ignoring the sun, and by not looking at the whole picture, you you've developed a distorted view of how climate works. We need to look at the whole picture, not just half of it. But is that true that there's there's actually less CO two now than in the past? Like, I mean, if somebody made the argument that we're actually balancing things out by taking that CO two out of the ground and putting it up in the air, like, is there is there any validity to that? Uh, CO2 was higher in the past, um, but like it was 10 times higher or, or more. But when CO2 was higher, the sun was like 5% cooler. And, and so therefore the two balance each other out. What we're doing now is now we've got a much hotter sun, yeah, okay. but then we're trying to bring CO2 levels up to that rate that it was back, you know, millions of years ago. That's like, that's double the amount of warming. So no, they don't balance each other out. They were balancing each other out in the past mm. now we're throwing it out of balance and, and it sounds like what you're saying i'm not trying to put words in your mouth but almost like that's that's a you said it wasn't by accident that way i guess like the earth kind of had had a balance for what the sun was giving it and so yeah it's um am i saying that uh, right? <laughs> it, like uh I'll, I'll get into the technicals because i actually quite find it quite fascinating um okay and it's not some kind of guy mystical kind of everything's in balancing it's it's just chemistry mm. um when the earth gets warmer um uh the uh the um i guess the the chemistry of of how uh, rocks uh, and, the, and the earth's surface interacts with the atmosphere changes and it speeds up its ability to to pull co2 out of the atmosphere so the uh the chemical reactions that convert atmospheric CO2 into, uh, and again, I, I was in uh, astrophysics, not chemistry, so I don't remember the exact equations, but, um, but basically when it gets hotter, CO2 gets pulled from the atmosphere quicker. So it's kind of like a, a, a natural thermostat. Uh, and uh, this happens over periods of millions of years, but, but um, what, th what that means is it, basically the Earth's climate system is self-regulated. If it gets hotter, it pulls the CO2 down. If it gets colder, the CO2 goes back up again and, mm. and they stay, they stay uh, in this kind of balance. Um, and so um, 
And we're so, upsetting that balance. Yeah, like, and this happens over geological periods, like right. thousands or millions of years, whereas we've raised CO2 levels 40% in 100 years, right. which is a blink of an eye in geological time. Yeah. All right, so there's one more, and, and this one is kind of the, the flip side of the argument. This is from people who believe in climate change but think there's nothing we can do about it. We're pretty much screwed, so you might as well do whatever you're going to do. Like, what, what do you say to people who say that? Um, climate change is not a binary issue. It's not either we have climate change or we don't have climate change. It's, it's a matter of degrees, literally a matter of degrees. Uh, and so uh, if we aggressively transition to uh, clean energy overnight, we'll experience maybe one and a half degrees to two degrees of warming or, or you know, well, we'll it'll be like just a, a one or two degrees. Mm-hmm. If we go business as usual, it, by the end of this century, it could be like six degrees. And it's probably going to be somewhere in the middle of that. It'll be between two to six degrees by the end of the century. And that is um, how, how bad it gets depends on the actions that we do now. So that, really, that thought really gets me up at night. No, it gets, gets, me, gets me up in the morning, keeps <laughs> me up at night. But, um, but the thought that every action we do now does make a difference. And it it can reduce the amount of impact that we have in the future. So, um, so it's, I think that that's important to recognize that idea that climate change is a matter of degrees, because mm-hmm. I think that, that reduces fatalism. It's, it's not all hopeless. Every action we do now can reduce the amount of impact that we will suffer down the track. Good answer. Um, I'm actually really excited right now because, um, the channel's doing pretty well, so I've got a little bit of extra money that I haven't had for a while. And um, the uh, the house that I live in, we've been here for like nine years, and there's all this stuff that I was wanting to do from the day I first moved in and have never been able to. And I'm starting to do some of that now. I actually had an energy auditor come and, and check out the house last week, and turned out that <laughs> I always love it when a contractor comes to your house and they're like, did this really pass inspection? <laughs> that's always a great line to hear from them um yeah. but he looked in the attic and he was like you're supposed to have 18 inches of insulation you have six inches um so anyway they're actually coming tomorrow on on saturday morning to you know do all that stuff and fix it and put you know make it so that the attic is not so hot and put the wind things on the top so that the heat can escape and all that and um anyway i've, I've got that going on I'm, i just bought a smart thermostat to regulate the house a little bit more wisely um, I am hoping to get solar panels sometime this summer out behind my house over here. And uh, it's exciting. I'm actually really excited about being able to do that. It might be a bit of a financial crunch at first. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, and that's a really good point is that it's a, a, a crunch at first, yeah. but in the long term, it saves you money. And, and I think that's one of the other, that's the, the good news story about climate action is there are a lot of co-benefits to acting on climate change. It, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So yeah. uh, in the long term, it actually saves society money if we're willing to make that initial investment. Um, but then there's a whole range of other benefits. Uh, and I think there's this cartoon uh, that says, what if we do all these things that make society much better? And it turns out to be a hoax. Like yeah. there are so many things that climate action um, improves, whether it's energy independence or cleaner air and cleaner water and just all these other um, you know, great benefits for for people in general, um, and it also helps stop our planet from getting destroyed. In addition, that little thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I think we're about out of time. I've kept you about long enough, but uh, I really appreciate you doing this. Is there is there any place that you want to send people? You got your website and your and your videos and stuff. Any other place you want to promote? Um, Actually, yeah, I guess. I guess skepticalscience.com is where I, I do my debunking. Um, climatechangecommunication.org is where I, um, I work and where I do my research. So those are, those are good, two good starting points. Cool. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, let me, let me uh, stop recording. I really appreciate you doing this. Yeah, no, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Hey, thanks for listening to the Answers with Joe podcast. If you found this through the YouTube channel and you are not subscribed on iTunes or Google Play, I encourage you to do so. I'm going to be coming back with interviews and 
repeats of old videos just like this all the time. And if you found this on the podcast player, then uh, know I have a YouTube channel on, uh, well, on YouTube. Just do a little search for Answers with Joe, and you'll find all kinds of fun science and comedy stuff to keep you entertained and thinking about cool stuff for the rest of the week. And you can find this and all my podcasts and all my videos at AnswersWithJoe.com. And if you enjoyed it, a nice review in the iTunes or Google Play Store goes a long way. And, of course, word of mouth means everything. So any, anything you can do to help get the word out, I really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. I will catch you next time. Have a good one.